0: today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 51 verses 1 to 3. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, as I trip over everything on the stage. Um, This is our third week in this new building, and we're still getting used to things, but it's good to see you all. Welcome to Redemption Church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, excited to to share God's word with you this morning. Our lead pastor, Frank, is is out of town this week and for the next couple weeks, and so you'll have to tolerate Cody and Josh and I. Hopefully, that's going to be all right. Um, If you're new here, I would love to meet you. And so please come find me after the service. I'll be in the back at the the Connect desk. Um, I'm going to go ahead and set my timer. And I'm just going to say that because it's awkward as I'm staring at my phone. So that I don't talk too long because I tend to talk too long. Um, So we're in the book of Psalms, right? We just read Psalm 51. And this is a a psalm of lament for for David's sin that he committed. And as I was thinking about the, the sin that David committed and really just kind of the sin that we see in our world, I was thinking about how good we are at pointing out the sin of other people or lamenting over the sin that is out there, right? And for good reason, right? We see people on the news getting shot. We see mass shootings. We see people getting raped or kidnapped. We see all kinds of awful things. And we think, oh, there's so much sin out there. And that's true. And we ought to lament and grieve and mourn that sin. But it's possible that we get so good at pointing out the sin out there that we fail to sometimes remember that the sin is also in here, in us. To illustrate my point, um, I'll tell a story. So I'm a a part-time professor at Grand Canyon University, and one of the classes I teach is called Christian Worldview, and at the beginning of the semester, we do this exercise where we evaluate kind of fundamental, big-picture worldview questions, questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? What's my purpose in life? What's wrong with the world? And we write them on the board. And so I'll, I'll write on the board, what's wrong with the world? And then I just have the students kind of rally off what the, the answers that come to mind. And things that come to mind are things like pride, greed, lust, envy, right? They say, they say all the, the right things. They say uh, sin. Sometimes they say Donald Trump. Sometimes they see Hillary Clinton. Sometimes they say cats, to which I heartily agree. Um, what's wrong with the world? And, and we just write it out. And what ends up happening is we fill up the whiteboard. And then we get done, I put the cap back on the marker, and I say, this is a pretty good list, guys, but not one of you, not one of you said me. And they all just kind of look at me like, in the classic millennial look, I'm not what's wrong with the world, right? But they feel the weight of that. They feel the weight of, oh, I, I am part of the problem. The Bible teaches us this, that we are part of what the problem is in the world, sin, The Bible teaches us that sin separates us from God. It does damage to our relationship with God. And yet we live our lives as though sin is just kind of a little speed bump or a little um, event that happens that we can just brush aside. But the Bible says that sin is very, very serious. And it distances us in our relationship from God. Today we're going to look at a section of scripture where the guy who wrote it realizes this distance. He realizes this separation from God. And he keenly understood that what God wanted most was his heart. In fact, that's my main point today. That's really my, my central point. We'll, we'll build off of that. But the, the big idea today is that God wants your heart. God wants your heart. So uh, let's look at the context before we get going. And Daniel, should I step back or am I doing something wrong? We're good? Okay. Um, Psalm 51 was written by David. And at the very beginning of Psalm 51, it says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is written in response to what David had done with Bathsheba. Now that doesn't give us enough information, so I want to go back to 2 Samuel. We're not going to turn to 2 Samuel, I'm just going to summarize the story as best we can. David was the king of Israel, and everything was pretty good. It was springtime, he was lounging around at his house while his army was out doing battle, which he should have been doing. And he's up on his roof, just basically hanging out, and he sees on a roof nearby a beautiful woman bathing. That beautiful woman's name was Bathsheba. And instead of turning from his lust and saying, no, that's, that's, she, she's not my wife, instead of turning from his lust, he engages that lust. He entertains that lust, and then he sends a messenger to to go to, to, to summon her, say, hey, I, I want you to come to my house. And even the messenger knows, hey, bro, that's, that's someone's wife. She's Uriah's wife. is one of your guys that's out fighting the war. And he says, bring her to me anyways. And so Bathsheba has no choice but to obey the order of the king. And um, they have sex. And she gets pregnant. And she tells David, I'm, I'm pregnant. And so instead of repenting and turning from his sin, David concocts this plan. He thinks, oh, well, I've got to cover up my sin. And so what does he do? He sends another messenger to go get Uriah off of the battlefield. He sends for Uriah. And Uriah comes home, and he tries to make small talk with Uriah. And he says, you know, how's the war going? How's the morale of the men? Blah, blah, blah. And, and then he, he hopes, David hopes that Uriah will go home that night and, and have sex with Bathsheba, his wife. But Uriah doesn't do that. He sleeps outside of King David's house. And when David finds out about this, he goes, what do you, why did you do that? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, it would dishonor my men who are out there camping in tents and fighting and dying for me to come home and have sex with my wife when they can't do the same thing. Uriah was a man of, of honor. And so instead of David owning up and saying, hey man, look, I slept with your wife, he gets Uriah drunk. He makes it worse. That next night, he gets Uriah drunk at, a, at another dinner party in hopes that in, his, that in Uriah's drunkenness, he'll go home and sleep with his wife. But he still doesn't do that. He passes out on David's couch. And so at this point, David is just snowballing out of control in his sin he thinks to himself, well, I I can't get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife and cover up the fact that I got her pregnant, so I'm just going to have to have Uriah killed, right? Think about the insanity of that. He can't get Uriah to go home and uh, Netflix and chill with his wife. And some of you don't know what that is, bless your hearts. Um, Netflix and chill is a derogatory phrase. That, and I learned this the hard way last year. Um, I'll tell you, sorry. So Netflix and chill means to go, have, to go have sex with somebody. And when my wife and I were dating, before we were even engaged last year, she had said, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? And I'm not hip with the lingo. I'm not, I guess I'm a millennial, but I don't feel like a millennial. So I don't know all the cool terms. Um, I, 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 I'm not in it with it, you know? And so I said, well, we can watch Netflix and chill. And she was like, um do you know what that means, babe? And I said, yeah, it means what I said. It means watch Netflix and hang out, like, chill. She's like, no, that's not what that means. And so she had to explain it to me. And then I was really super embarrassed. Um, I asked her for permission to share this story this morning. In preaching class in seminary, they said, always ask your wife for permission before you share. story about it. Uriah didn't go home and, and sleep with his wife. And so David says, I'll have him killed. And so David drafts this letter, and in the letter he writes this to the commanding officer on the front lines of the battlefields. He says, send Uriah to the front lines where the where the, the fighting is the fiercest, and then draw back so that he is killed. He signs this letter, King David, seals it, hands it to Uriah, and Uriah with honor and dutifully walks it to the front lines, hands it to the commanding officer, and the commanding officer follows the orders, not knowing what's going on, and Uriah is killed. The news, of course, comes home that Uriah is killed, and Bathsheba, as you can imagine, is devastated. Utterly devastated. Like I said, the insanity of David's sin is spiraling out of control at this point. And so David now has Bathsheba as his wife. She has no other option. She's a widow. So she becomes, by default, his wife. And they live happily ever after. Except not. Right? David thinks he can hide his sin from all these people, but he can't hide his sin from God. And David will pay for his sin. And the consequences of that sin are beyond the scope of our study today. But we are going to look at what eventually happens when David is confronted in his sin. God sends a prophet, Nathan, and Nathan goes to David, and he tells him this story, and I'll sum it up. Nathan basically says, hey David, what do you think of this? There's a rich guy and a poor guy. Rich guy has everything he could have ever want. Poor guy has like one main thing that he really loves. And the rich guy stole that one main thing from the poor guy. And David's infuriated with the story. He's like off with his head, essentially. And Nathan goes, you are that guy. You are that guy, David. And David is driven to despair. At that point, finally, he doesn't doesn't deny or run from his sin. He humbles himself. And he says in 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Imagine for a moment that statement, the weight of that statement. It crushes David and he realizes that he must repent and turn back to the Lord. So, in light of him being called out by Nathan, this is where we pick up in Psalm 51. He pens this psalm in response to being called out and realizing, "O oh Lord, I have sinned against you grievously. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David knows here that he desperately needs God's mercy because He cannot bear God's justice. All sin deserves justice. It always deserves justice. It never, ever deserves mercy. And yet, God gives mercy to those whom he chooses for the reasons that are according to God's character. Reasons that we'll never figure out. A part of me goes, why didn't David just get like, cut off by God. Why, why, why was he even allowed to live after he had this guy murdered? But God, in his love, his character of love and mercy, let David live. And so in response to that, David is crying out, have mercy on me, O God. It's because of God's mercy, the character of God, that David confidently can, can approach God's throne, essentially, and say, God, would you, would you forgive me? In verses 2 and 3, he says... Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Iniquity is just another word for sin, right? Wash me from my iniquity, my sin. The things that I have done wrong. Same thing with transgression. Transgression is the Hebrew word pasha. Pesha Peshaw means wrongdoing or like lawlessness. To transgress something is to go beyond the boundary that Somebody else or something else had set. And David says, uh, forgive me of my transgressions. Those transgressions are before me. I see them, but would you wash me from them? Have you ever been there in life where your transgressions are just, someone's called you out and you just feel it? You can just see it? And your sin is so ugly, if that's a word, staring you in the face? I I know I've been there before. Where I feel the weight of just my own sin and ugliness. Um, I have a good friend who's like a a Nathan in my life, who one time, man, just called me to the carpet for my ridiculous anger and condescension. We were out on the boat. I'm from Lake Havasu City, and it was me and some friends and my, my sister. We were out on the boat, and I was driving, and my sister had just got done wakeboarding, and she came in, And she took off her life jacket and set it on the back of the boat and left the ladder down. And then um, one of the other guys was bringing in the rope. And um, Kelly, my sister, said, let's go. And she was, you know, heavy breathing, you know, just tired from wakeboarding. And for those of you that know my sister, she's really sweet. Um, And she didn't mean to leave the the ladder down on the boat nor the life vest on the back. But she did. and, And I didn't check. And so I just started going. And um, we got up to speed, and, and I hear one of the other guys in the boat say, hey, stop, 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 stop. The life jacket's back there. And so I pull the throttle back, and, oh, the life vest is back there. And I just blew up, like lost my marbles on my sister and just started yelling at her, like really, really unhelpful, not a good brother moment for me, just berating her. And she, of course, knew that she had done wrong. She didn't mean to do that, though. And my friend, Charles, he just laid into me. He said, dude, it's just a life vest. It's gonna float. We can go back and get it. You're treating your sister like trash. Knock it off, dude. Who do you think you are? He he just hammered me with it. And in that moment, I was like, whoa, you're totally right. You're totally, and it was just, my sin was so ugly. It was so right there before me. Without good people in our lives pointing us constantly to Jesus, We'd be, we'd be too stupid to even realize our own sin, much like Nathan did for David. Sometimes our sin is just that way, you know? Like we're so immersed in it, like rats don't smell their own holes. We, we don't even see it. And the reason we don't see it is because our hearts are by default corrupt and sinful. We are much like David in verse five. He says this, look, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This isn't saying that our moms conceived us in sin like they, they, they got knocked up in sin, although that might be the case. But what David is saying here, I'm not trying to make a, I wasn't trying to be crude. Um, sometimes words leave my mouth and I'm like, ah. Uh. What David means here is that he was born into sin, that sin was everywhere. He couldn't get away from it, even as a, baby, he identified himself as a sinner. And if you think, oh, who, who would identify a baby as a sinner? You must not be a parent. Um, if you don't believe me about kids being sinners, come find me after the service. I'll give you an application for the children's ministry because right now there are about 45 little sinners. They're cute. They're funny. They smell bad, but they're right there in that corridor. You can go and, and every Sunday you can experience all the sin, right? Right? And that's just from speaking from experience. The Bible says that, like this, that we're born sinners. We have an inherent nature to sin. We are that way. Toddlers are that way. David was that way. By the way, when I talk about our hearts being sinful, um, I, I mean it that uh, our, our hearts would, outside of God's love and mercy, would, would always choose the wrong thing but it's because of God's love and mercy that our hearts can be changed. So my main point was this. God wants our hearts. I don't mean by that that God wants to control our lives, that God wants to make us into robots. No, God wants our hearts because when, when he has our heart, it brings God great delight. Look at verse six. Behold, you, God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom, in the secret heart. The scripture's telling us that God loves it when our hearts are centered on truth. And it's through that that God has the opportunity to teach us wisdom. God can teach us wisdom through the scriptures, and he often does, and then we apply it to our lives. And God can teach us wisdom through the mistakes of our past and learning from the the, the previous things that we've done wrong. For those of you that have ever gotten a speeding ticket, and I presume that's all of you, um, you've you've driven past the place where you got that speeding ticket and you're like 10 and 2, right? Driving slowly, kind of checking your six o'clock, right? Because wisdom has said, don't drive fast through here, you moron. You got a ticket here before. Wisdom teaches us from experience. We learn from the sins of our past. The good news for Christians is that the sins of our past, God doesn't hold those sins against us. Bible says that he makes us clean. Look down at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So hyssop is a plant that, um, it it exists in in Israel, and it was used by Israelite, by Hebrew priests, for a sprinkling of of water. And they they said that some of the the buds of the plant had like a a certain cleansing property to it, a detergent-like quality that um, could make things clean. And so when David uses the hyssop plant here, uh, he's using it as an illustration. He's not saying that literally God's going to cleanse him with hyssop, but it's just an illustration. And then he carries the illustration forward when he talks about snow. He says, um, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's hard to think of anything that's whiter than snow, right? Snow has this Certain radiant beauty to it that just when it falls, it makes everything beautiful. You know what I'm talking about? It covers, it makes sharp jagged edges um, smooth. It it has this this white glow to it that when the sunlight hits it, it's just it just glows with beauty. You know what I'm talking about? That peaceful. Some of you are like, it's midsummer. We're in our Phoenix. What is this snow? You were talking about snow is the whitest thing David could probably think of. And then he takes that analogy and he applies it to himself, referring to God's forgiveness. He says, make me like that snow. White as snow represents the perfection and the purity of God. And David anticipates that perfection and that purity being applied to himself. And it's that kind of purity and cleansing that we can have through Christ. Friends, the the good news of the gospel is that if you are in Christ, you are clean. Like you are white as snow. And even that analogy fails because snow can get tarnished, right? There's a thing such as black or yellow snow, right? If you are in Christ, you are clean. You are washed. You are forgiven. Does that make your heart, when you think about it, does that make your heart rejoice? This is where you say amen. So as I was preparing for this Sunday, I was kind of toggling back and forth between preparing and then I was on Instagram and I saw that a friend of mine's son was celebrating this, this freedom in the gospel. He's, his name is Calvin, he's five years old. And he gets this, he understands this clearly, what it means to be free in Christ, to be clean because of Christ. And so on Instagram, she posted this picture of um, the, the iconic scene from Free Willy. Do y'all remember that movie? It's kind of a cheesy 90s movie um, is about uh, t- if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert Willie gets freed um, <laughs> it's about this whale named Willie and w- Willie is in captivity with like SeaWorld or something I'm not sure and this little boy likes him, I'm telling a very rough story here, the little boy likes him and wants Willie freed, I think the w- little boy works for PETA or something and he somehow through the course of the movie gets um, Willie to the ocean and there's one final place where there's these rocks and like a jetty that goes out in the, in the ocean. And the, the whale has to jump over these rocks to get to the open ocean, to be really free. And at the very end of the movie, Willie gets freed. He goes over the rocks and the little boy's standing there with his arm up, kind of touching the, the whale as it's, as it's dripping water going past. And it's, it's kind of a cool movie. Um, and so she posts this picture of free Willie with the little boy reaching his arm up like this. And she said this, she said, we just watched Free Willy with our son and this is what he said. He said, Guys, Willie is free from the poachers just like we are free from our sin. The poachers are trying to capture Willie, like Satan tries to capture us but we are on the other side of the rocks free from Satan. We are God's people so we are free. (laughs) Calvin's five. If a kindergartner can grasp and celebrate the gospel because of a cheesy 90s movie, how much more ought we to celebrate the gospel when we see it in God's word and when we feel it applied to our hearts? Look at verse 8. The joy that we should receive comes out of this. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Friends, we experience joy and gladness when our sin has been removed from us. Although our sin breaks us, it devastates us, our bones feel metaphorically broken, but true joy is possible when we consider the fact that God hides his face. Like verse 9, says, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. When we consider that, that brings us joy. God wipes, instead of wiping us out, he wipes away our sin. He wipes away our guilt. And in light of this forgiveness, David transitions now to the centrality of what God wants, and that's our hearts. Look down at the next section, verse 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Our hearts are the center of our wills, they are the seat of our emotions. In a lot of ways, our hearts control and, and compel us. And, and culture, te- like Oprah and social media, they tell us, follow your heart, right? Terrible advice. Don't follow your heart. Follow God is what a, a Christian response that would be. No, don't follow your heart. Follow God. I know there have been times in my life where I have followed my heart, and it never fared well for me. Following my heart is stupid. It's led me to places of lust and laziness. leaves me blinded and blinded. Following my heart is contrary to what God wants. Instead, God wants for us to have new hearts, made new, not because of our own self-exertion or will, but because of God's love and mercy transforming our hearts. When I feel my heart start to wander, I can feel God tugging on it because that's what he wants most. He wants my heart. David also says, renew a right spirit within me. Here, he is acknowledging his utter dependence on the Lord. He's saying to God, God, my my heart hasn't been right. It's been out of step with your will. Please reorient it. Change it from this direction to that direction. I want to be near your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Don't take your presence from me. When we feel... This way, we, we feel this way because of sin, and like I said, sin is what separates us from God. It it pushes us away. It's the opposite of God's holiness. If if God's holiness is here, sin brings us in the opposite direction because sin is vile and impure. It denigrates us and it dishonors our Lord. And David, after his sin, he felt this distance. He felt far away from God. And we experience that same kind of distance when we sin. And that distance can sometimes be paralyzing and feel cold. We feel far from God, and that like like there's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. And, friends, this is where Christian joy comes in. Look at verse 12 Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Christian, this is your verse. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, God, and uphold me with a willing spirit. When God feels far away, when God feels distant, Christian, you, pray this prayer. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because my heart, being corrupt, it cannot restore itself. It cannot reorient the other direction. My heart, needs God to change it, to turn it. Only God can restore the salvation that belongs to Him because it belongs to Him. It's not restore to me the joy of my salvation, it's just your salvation, God, the salvation that you provide, the salvation that you offer that's only available through you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When we are far from God, we don't experience this joy. One of the problems is when we are far we end up having, a, a, and this isn't the reason we go back to God, but one of, the, one of the results is we end up having a poor testimony. Our testimony is diminished when our hearts are not right. It's, it's evident, right? People notice. They're like, wait, that guy, that gal, she's not walking with the Lord. Who does she think she is telling me how to live my life, right? How are they going to teach me? They're not legit. Their Christianity is kind of a fraud, I don't see God really at work in their life. How are they going to teach me how to live my life? It's only after our hearts are right that the message that we have, the message of Jesus, can be more legitimately um, received by our, by our hearers. And David recognizes this. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then. Then. After the joy of the salvation of the Lord is restored to him, after his heart is made new, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David realized that his sin meant that his message to teach sinners wouldn't be received very well. He he knew that his sin of murder wouldn't be received well and he had killed Uriah intentionally and he acknowledges this in the very next verse. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Being guilty of another man's blood, David knows that his only option is to admit it, to own it, to confess it. And in response to that, he breaks into praise for not being dead. Because God could have killed him. He breaks into praise. He says, let my tongue sing aloud. Let me praise you for your righteousness. We see that full measure of repentance of David's heart turning. We see it played out in the next two verses. Look at verse 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, God, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When David says that God doesn't delight in sacrifice, he means God doesn't care about outward religious uh, rituals. God doesn't care about what you do to kind of pretend like you never sinned. No, God wants your heart. God wants your heart. And and sa- what sacrifices had become to Israel was a way for them to um, just kind of brush their sin under the rug, when really the purpose of sacrifices was to demonstrate their deep sorrow and repentance from sin. And sacrifices, by the way, ultimately pointed forward to the cross, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. But the Israelites had failed to grasp that in a lot of ways, and sacrifices just became this quick fix. Like, oh, you sinned? Just do the thing, pray the prayer, right? The, the sacrifice thing. Get the animal, the burnt offering, just make it happen then let's move on and everything's fine right no no everything's not fine God says I won't accept that that's wrong you're not even really sorry band-aids don't fix bullet holes you say sorry just for show (laughs) right that's what this is some of you are like wow he's quoting Taylor Swift Frank's gone things really go off the rails I like Taylor Swift no shame she's good sacrifices are not an indicator of a heart that loves God. They're just rituals that don't accomplish anything. Instead, God wants your heart. God wants your heart contrite and and, and broken. Hearts that grieve when we sin. Hearts that don't run after ways to um, earn God's favor, but hearts that run after ways to enjoy God's goodness towards us. Hearts that are filled with love. Hearts that are filled with God's spirit. Hearts that identify with, I am forgiven. And I don't have to behave like I used to. Hearts that are filled with a willingness for obedience. So you might think, okay, well that sounds great, David, but I don't don't know how to get that heart. Like, how does this apply to me personally? What am I going to take home from this? And I would say this, we ought to start with prayer. We ought to start like David did, just praying to God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Asking God to change your heart is the starting place. It's the most basic step towards getting closer to God. When we humble ourselves and we admit that we can't do it alone, God draws near. The Bible says that when we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. Our hearts... Are changed when we get closer in relationship with God. And we do that through talking to Him. Now, one of the roadblocks that pops up is obviously sin. When we sin, though, we tend to avoid God, we tend to hide from God. And this is true when we sin grievously, like David did. He had just a mountain of horrific sins. And you may think, I've never really done those things. But you may be in a place where you go, my sin has just been incremental. It's just led me kind of step by step away from God. And I, I don't know what happened. I just feel this such distance. And, and I want to get back, but I, I don't know how. We start with prayer. We start with prayer and we start just acknowledging, God, I'm far from you. And because of this distance, I have not really wanted you. And so when I find myself in that place, and, and I do, uh, I, I don't even know what to pray other than, God, I don't really want you. I'm just really honest with God. You can be honest with God. It's good to do that. God, I don't really want you. Help me to want to want you. And God starts there, and he starts drawing us closer, drawing us closer to himself through these kinds of prayers. Unfortunately, when we get to a place like that, where we're far from God, our default is to hide, is to avoid, because we're embarrassed or we're ashamed, and we think that, like, God's mad at us and doesn't want us back. Or if we come back, he's gonna like look down on us and be like, where have you been this whole time? But God doesn't operate that way. The Bible says God loves us and God is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. So starting place is just saying, God, I want to want you. Help me to want that. Asking for his help. It's not not complicated. And what's remarkable is that when you do this, God responds with the affirmative. It's not like God's sitting there going, "Mm, maybe, maybe we'll be close again, if that's my will. No, it is his will. God wants for us to be close to him. And so it's remarkable to see when you pray that, God, I want to be close to you. He, He comes near to you because he wants your heart. He wants your heart, not just your behavior. Another way we can get close to God is by allowing good people in our lives to speak into us. By having a sort of Nathan, if you will, somebody who can encourage us, rebuke us, um, just ask us questions like, "How are you doing?" I have a guy, I have a couple guys like that in my life that just on occasion they'll ask me, "Hey man, how's your heart? How how how's your relationship with the Lord? How's your relationship with your wife? Are you carving out time for the Lord and for your? Are you? How is your work productivity going? How are you doing?" Right. And in those kinds of relationships we inevitably get drawn closer to the Lord because if we are not close to the Lord, the person speaking into our lives, they see right through that veneer. If they know us well enough, they know something's a little off here. What's going on? Those kinds of friendships, the Nathans in our life, we should want those. We should long for those because those are helpful to us. They have a way of reorienting us from God. Like I said, my friend called me out that one time. We were out on the boat. And it just, it, it brought me from here, anger, to whoa, I've really wronged my sister. And, and through so doing, wronged the Lord as well. So, do you have those people in your life? And you think, no, I don't. And I don't really know anybody that would like have that kind of ability or authority to speak in my life because I'm not that close with anybody. Um, friends, I want to say this this is a church that affords you opportunities to get connected with people. And so, if you'd say, I don't have those connections, please. Seek those connections out. Start by coming back to the Connect Desk, find me, and say, hey, I want to get plugged in. There are two primary ways you get plugged in. You can start serving, which is a great, and I know it sounds like, oh, he's going to put me to work, right. Um, but it's a great way to meet people and to see how your gifts and your skills can be um, used for God's glory for the church and in community with other people. And through that, you just, you form relationships. In fact, I would say you form uh, uh, b- better and, and, and more firm relationships when you're serving together than when you're just kind of hanging out and having coffee. And don't, I'm not denigrating coffee, although it's gross and I don't like it. But um, co- coffee is, is, another, is just another option. I'm saying get, get in a place where you can serve and you can meet other people. Another way you can get plugged in is through our small groups. I'm kind of, I'm the small groups pastor. And so I would love to see you Um, get connected in a small group. We have 12 or 13 of them that meet throughout the week. And so I have a list of them in the back. If you'd say, I really want to get into a small group, come find me. There are people there that would would love to get to know you. Third way you get plugged in is just by simply turning to your neighbor and and, and on a Sunday morning just saying, hey, I don't know you, but I'd like to get to know you. Stick your hand out. And some of you are introverts, you're like, no way. But I I, I think it'd be a challenge for you to be helpful. The point is, I don't care how you do it, but find somebody who can help point you to Jesus. You might be at a place where you don't want that, and you just go, no, that sounds too scary. My hope is that as you realize that God wants your heart, that you would come to a place where you would want to be known by other Christians. God wants your heart, most fundamentally. So, As we get wrapped up here, I want to conclude by going back to a story I told uh, early on. I I told you about my students. And at the beginning of the semester, we write on the board, what's wrong with the world? And what I do is at the end of the semester, I give them a final exam. It's a written exam. And I ask them a bunch of opinion-based questions at the end, where as long as they don't leave it blank, they'll get it right. And one of the questions that I ask them is, what's wrong with the world, in your opinion, and what is the solution to it? And I get a whole host of of questions, uh, of of answers to that. Um, But there was one answer that stuck out to me this last time. I taught it last spring. And I want to read it to you guys. She says this. She says, me, I am what's wrong with the world. I was like, drop the mic. I felt like I had done my job, right? She got it. But she goes on. She says, my heart is full of insecureness. I should have graded her on grammar. Um, My heart is full of, I think she meant insecurity, Insecurity and pride and selfishness, I am a sinner, but I know the solution because I accepted him in my heart. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. He is creating a new, clean heart in me. He promises to one day fix all the evil of the world, including mine. I will give him my heart until then. Friends, this student gets it. She understands that God wants her heart. She also understands that her heart is part of the problem. Jesus is the only solution to this. Jesus is the only one who has a completely pure heart. Jesus is the only one who is completely free from sin, who turned from the lust, who didn't deceive and manipulate, who didn't get people drunk, who didn't have their husbands murdered. Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. And so when I say God wants your heart, I don't want you to feel like, oh, I've got to change my behavior and just be a better person and give God my heart. No, if you hear me saying that, that's not what I meant. When I say God wants your heart, it means you recognize that Christ's heart is pure and that the only way you will ever align with and be connected to God is through knowing Christ. And so if you're here and you've never known Christ, you've never met Christ, I want to just invite you to know Christ, to meet him for the first time today. And so we're going to do communion here in just a second. We will have uh, communion servers on each side here. We will have deacons and elders available to pray, and they'll be kind of off uh, in the wings. I would invite you, if you do not know Christ, come forward and just say, I want to meet Jesus for the first time today. And you can do that. For many of us, you've met Jesus, you know Jesus. You've communed with Jesus maybe for many, many years. And that's great, and we're going to continue to do that. Our hearts, being sinful by nature, tend to go away. But even for the, those of us who know Jesus, we know that Jesus is bringing our hearts back to himself. And that's my prayer for us, is that if you met Christ for the first time, let's celebrate. If you've been with Christ for 25, 30 years, let's celebrate that as well. Because God wants your heart. Let's pray. God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so we pray that you would help us to to do that, to have that, to have that kind of rest. Not rest in changing our behavior or, 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 or seeming like a better person, but the rest that comes from knowing you truly. God, you are abounding in love and abounding in mercy. And we deserve none of it. But because of Jesus, you offer it to us. As we receive it tonight, this morning, we pray that we would celebrate that, that it would bring you much glory, and that it would bring our hearts great, great joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.